Cordova. Welcome to the Western Slope Collaborative. Our main goal as a collaborative has been and will continue to be to increase access to services for families on the Western Slope by bringing together partners to learn about other agencies, promote partner services, and increase collaborative service delivery. A few months ago, we as a collective agreed that we needed training on implicit bias. This is the true purpose, essence, and meaning of collaboration. We are finding new ways to improve service delivery to the most vulnerable families in our community. The Western Slope Collaborative Leadership Team focused on not only finding someone who could provide us with training, but someone who is right for our community. Painting worked hard to find someone and Alice led the vetting process. We are here today because we found a true advocate for social justice and education. Hi everyone. We are very happy to have you all join us. Before we introduce you to our speaker today, please note that today's meeting structure is a little different from our usual monthly meetings. We will not be doing roundtable updates today. So if you do have um, any updates that you would like us to circulate, please add the information and your organization in the chat box. And you if you have any questions, or excuse me, actually email uh, any of the information that you have for your organization that you would like us to circulate. And then if you have any questions during the presentation, please use the Q&A feature on the chat box. You will be on mute for the entirety of the presentation, but we will try to get to all the questions in the, at the end of the presentation. Thank you. CEO of Reno Foundation, a nonprofit organization that primarily focuses on social justice, education, and the arts. Born and raised in the Bay Area, Mr. Reno was, has worked in education as a teacher, dean of students, and coach prior to his successful career as a college basketball coach that spanned over three decades. He served as a police officer in the city of Oakland, California. Mr. Reno sits on the board of a variety of nonprofit organizations and volunteers his time running basketball clinics and youth camps. Serving as a counselor and mentor to at-risk youth, he currently works as an associate director, university center, event center at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he continues to make contributions to society through his presentations, webinars, and symposiums to help educate others about becoming more aware of unconscious stereotypes and how to contribute to making positive change in their communities. It is an honor and privilege to present to you, Luis Reyna. Wow. Thank you, uh, Jesus. And uh, that was uh, very nice. I think my parents probably wrote that for you. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, nice to be here. Western Slopes, um, Penny and Alice, thank you for having me as well, as well as your organization. I know you guys do a lot of wonderful work there, and uh, you guys are up there in God's country. I've been there, uh, passed there several times, going to Tahoe uh, on ski trips and other things, but beautiful part of the country, God's country. I'm coming to you all from Santa Barbara, California, another, another place that is uh, similar to yours, maybe a little more water, uh, Beach, beach thing, but thank you for all, all for having me. And just want to, a few disclaimers before we get into the presentation. Uh, you know, I'm just, uh, 
uh, Jesus read a lot of my background there. I'm, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a politician. This is this talk is strictly from my heart, my experiences as uh, uh, as a black man uh, growing up in the Bay Area, and my experience uh, obviously as an Oakland police officer and and traveling around as a college basketball coach for the last three decades. So I want to share with you guys some ideas on uh, complicit bias and stereotypes and, and some of my experiences. Um, I am obviously pro-police. Um, I do think there needs to be some reform. That's probably a talk for another day. And um, I do believe that, you know, all lives matter. And if all lives matter, certainly black lives matter. So just a little about what I'm going to go through today. Uh, you've heard a little bit about me. I'm going to talk about implicit bias. Um, the BB exercises of 1968, which I was a part of, uh, it won't rub off. The POPO perspective, POPO stands for police. White privilege. Uh, for those of you who like to play cards, aces. Uh, 45 years ago, little perspective from there, and say their names, which is a popular thing going on now. Uh, you can't fix problem that you can't see. WDBPW, we will discuss that one at length. And then at the end, I'd like to give you some tools and resources, suggestions on how you can uh, use anything, any of the knowledge or experiences that I've shared with you, and I'll share my contact information. There'll be a Q&A at the end. And at the end, also, there's a survey. If, for those of you who have smartphones, you just hold up the smartphone. It'll click into there. You can go in there. There are four to six questions you want to evaluate uh, for a survey for uh, my information. So implicit bias is basically, you know, attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding of actions and decisions. But a lot of them are unconscious. We don't even know we're having them. I'll give you guys some examples of, of that. Um, for example, a white person might say, people smoking weed, hippies. Black people do the same thing, thugs. Uh, on welfare, poor, black people, lazy. White people, white girls gone wild, good old college days. Black girls twerking, poor. Uh, can't find a job. Bad economy, black, can't find a job, dependent. Some other examples are white countries bombing brown countries, democracy, September 11th, terrorism. Whites torch cops' cars, destroy property after baseball games, rowdy, spirited. Blacks torch cop cars and destroy property after a cop gets away with murder, savages. White people in corporate positions of power, hard work. Black people, same thing, affirmative action. These were some examples of some unconscious biases that we have. I'm gonna give you a quick story. Um, you know, I was born and raised in San Francisco. My father is a doctor, mother's a nurse. It's pretty fortunate. All four of us grew up in a community. Um, where, uh, you know, we were, education was stressed, we were blessed, we were privileged to have two parents, dinner every night, 
uh, came to all our sporting events, loved support. We were told we could do anything. Lived pretty much a dream childhood. Um, I can remember, recall, I was at Cal. This was maybe several years ago. And uh, I was coaching, and every year they do a thing where they invite all the coaches in the Bay Area colleges, Stanford, Cal, Fresno State, St. Mary's, USF, et cetera. And it's, it was at the Olympic Club, where, as you all know, it uh, was private for a long time, didn't let in blacks, Jews, Mexicans, anybody other than white females couldn't exist. And, you know, I was there to play golf. And then afterwards, we had the banquet. And I was standing in front of the clubhouse in my slacks and Argyle sweater, uh, looking like a Scotsman, probably. And a uh, man drove up his Cadillac, op popped open his trunk, threw me the keys, and told me he was playing with Mr. So-and-so. And uh, I thought I was dressed pretty good, but um, we ended up going off the tee, and I just handed his keys to someone who worked there. But he ended up playing in the same group tournament that I was in. And at the end, he came up and apologized. He said, I thought you worked here. I had no idea anybody apologized. But that's some of the uh, unconscious biases that we carry. I have lots of stories for you today, but that's just one of them. So moving on to 1968. Um, you see this young lad here is fourth, fourth grader. That is me. I was in fourth grade at the time. And at that time, a lady named Jane Elliott, who was a anti-racist activist, she did an exercise called the blue-eyed, uh, brown-eyed exercise. And uh, I, did, I was involved in that exercise, not in her exercise specifically, but they did it in classrooms all around the country. And what happened, what the idea was, if you were, if you had blue eyes, you were discriminated against. Obviously, my eyes are brown, if you could see the picture. And I was in the class. I was actually interviewed at the time. And at that time, I couldn't understand why I was getting certain privileges, whether to go to recess first or, or whatever it was. But uh, Jane Elliott did it. And Oprah Winfrey uh, aired a show in 1992. We're going to look at about two and a half minutes of that show. And that was the gist of the exercise. Check this out. Uh, I guess Oprah's having some technical difficulties. All right. Sorry about this. Just one moment. Checking these technical difficulties, apologies. I'm backstage right now because today's studio audience thinks that they've come to a regular Oprah Winfrey show, but without knowing it, they've walked into this exercise. It's an exercise in racism. And my guest, Jane Elliott, started this exercise a long time ago in her third grade class back in 1968 after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. What she's going to do is to demonstrate how easy it is to learn prejudice. The point being that we are taught to hate each other 
on the basis of the color of our skins. So today's audience was separated into two groups, not on the color of their skin were they separated when they arrived. They were separated based on the color of their eyes, but they have no idea that they were separated. What we did was treat each group differently, discriminating against the people who have blue eyes, catering to those people with brown eyes. So here's how the blue-eyed people were treated when they arrived at the show. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Look over your eyes. Blue, over there, put it on. No, 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 over there. The blue-eyed people were pulled out of line, told to put on a green collar, and wait outside. When the brown-eyed people arrived, they were told to step to the front of the line. Our staff was instructed to be extra polite to brown-eyed people and to discriminate against blue-eyed people, like this one. Yeah, I was saying, but actually, my license got stolen. And when I went to replace it, sorry, that's not our Audience members with brown eyes were allowed to enjoy coffee and donuts. Those with blue eyes were left standing in a crowded room without refreshments for over two hours. The blue-eyed group became upset when they saw the brown-eyed people were being seated first. A woman with blue eyes was outraged when she realized we had fed the brown-eyed people. After two hours of being discriminated against, the blue-eyed group began to revolt. So I just want to warn all of you who are watching, you know more than they know in the audience. This show is a very important lesson in racism. It may make you angry, but no matter how angry you get, I encourage you to please don't turn the channel because the purpose will be revealed before the show is over. The idea is to see how easy it is to be taught to hate. What color eyes do you have? It really doesn't matter, just as it doesn't matter what color skin you have. But I want you to watch as my guest convinces this audience that blue-eyed people are not as smart as brown-eyed people, just as a lot of Americans have been convinced that people of color are not as smart. So we're not going to watch the whole exercise, but you guys get the gist of it. And um, when I was in fourth grade, I remember um, they, the blue eyed, everybody had blue eyes in our class. Um, it was a two day experiment in our case, and everybody was treated like that for two days who had blue eyes. And there weren't many of us with brown eyes or other color eyes enough, but we couldn't figure out until we got to the end. and. They taped us and told us the purpose of it, which was a little empathy, a little sympathy to see what, what, what prejudice or racism or stereotypes felt like. And it was a very emotional day for all of us in the classroom. Um, anyway, if you all want to check that out, you can go to YouTube and finish the rest of that. It, you know, it's Oprah 1992. Um, so I want to share a little experience I had when I was a kid. Um, Growing up in San Francisco, we lived in a very, one of the most affluent neighborhoods in San Francisco, judges, doctors, lawyers, uh, Mayor Feinstein, a lot of very affluent people lived in the neighborhood. We had moved there, oh, when I was very little. And um, it was easy making friends with the other uh, people in the neighborhood who were kids. I don't know what the rest, I was too young to know what the rest of people made of our family, but I had, there were four of us, four boys, mom and dad. And as I said, my parents, my dad was a doctor and 
I remember one time being at home, we were in our romper's room and with some friends and uh, two other friends who lived on the block who were uh, Caucasian, were white. And my dad came home early and we had been there a few weeks and they had never met uh, my father, but he'd come home early from work that day. And he walked in and they, uh, to my two friends' jaws dropped. They just stared at my dad and the room went silent. I, I didn't know what was wrong. And um, uh, I come to find out later that they had really never seen a black man up that close as my dad. And my dad, being the smart, funny guy he is, he walked over to him, put his arms around both of them and said, he put their hands and rubbed it on his cheeks like this. And he said, don't worry guys, it won't rub off. And we all laughed for about five minutes, it seemed like. And from that day on, they just came to love my dad. And uh, later my dad said he was just trying to make them feel at ease. And to this day, I saw one of my friends, that was long, God, we were young then, grammar school, saw one of my friends uh, last year and he reminded me of, it won't rub off. Um, so moving on, as I mentioned, I was an ex-police officer as Jesus mentioned, in Oakland, California. I spent almost six years on the street and got a uh, interesting look at life. And I will say this, I am pro-police. I do think we need some modifications in the system. I won't talk about those today. Um, I will also admit that, hey, more white people are killed by police than black people. And you know, even though blacks are only 12, 13% of the population, um, and there's a lot of black on black crime. I'm not trying to say there isn't. But what the Popo police perspective should be is on every police car in any community anywhere almost says it's protecting to serve, to serve the community. And community policing is simply means that it's a collaborative in which police and people live in the community have responsibility to keep their community safe. And a little history lesson in the history of policing, back when policing was kind of created in as the Bobbies in England, as you all know them today, they were simply a group of volunteers who carried no guns, no weapons in the community. And they knew the problems in their community. And if so-and-so was truant, a little teenager was truant, or there was some problem in the neighborhood, they knew it was their neighborhood, they spoke the language, they knew the community, they brought them home to mom and dad and by the ear, and, and they dealt with it that way as opposed to some of the things you're seeing today on the news and how we deal with it. So community policing is definitely gonna be a wave of the future. What it is, is there's basically two justice systems, and there's one justice system that's in the suburbs where I don't think a lot needs to change. Uh, people probably wish there were less tickets written or things like that, but community is safe. They kind of know their officers. And, and then there's in the inner city where people are experiencing a lot of things that you've seen or over the last uh, five months particularly, but what I've seen all my life. The first time I was stopped by the police in my neighborhood, and I've lived in the neighborhood I mentioned to you earlier, for about three or four years at that time, I was walking home from school and I was stopped by the police and they asked me where I was going. I said home, they asked me where I lived. I told them, they said, no, you don't. I was searched, put in the back of the car, 
They said, we're, we're going to drive you to that address, which they did. Walk me up. I was scared. I was more scared of what my, my parents would think uh, as I was from the police. Um, so my parents were pretty strict. And I was afraid they would thought I did something wrong. But um, knocked on the door. My mother just happened to be home. And they said, is this your son? Yes. What did he do? Oh, not, nothing. He said he lived here. We're, okay. And my mother told me in stern voice, go to the back of the room. And I knew the police were going to get it. And I, I don't remember what she said, but my mother's about five foot three in a bowl of fire and they got an earful of it. But police are paramilitary trained. Um, and it kind of sometimes could build an us, particularly in the inner cities, an us versus them mentality. And I think as if you all been following a lot of the news, that's some of that's going to change. There's going to be some reform. Uh, the 50A records, which is police's um, uh, violence record, or um, is going to have to be shared if you were fired from another police department. Chokeholds are being going to be outlawed. A lot of stuff is changing now as a result of what you've seen. So I have a little exercise for you all now. Um, call this the 12 questions of right privilege. And for this, if you could just hold up both your hands like I am now, it's showing, you know, 10 fingers. And you put a finger down to each question that applies to you. Um, and they all start with put one finger down if. So we got 12 questions. So here we go, run through this quickly. Put one finger down if you have ever been called a racial slur. And you, if you have, you just put one finger down. Put one finger down if you've ever been followed inside the store while shopping. Three, put one finger down if you have crossed the street, if someone has crossed the street to avoid passing you. Put one finger down if you've had someone clutch their bag or their purse while standing in an elevator next to you. Put one finger down if you've had someone step off the elevator and say they will wait for the next one to avoid riding with you, obviously before the pandemic. Um, put one finger down if you have been accused or questioned about not being able to afford something expensive. Seven, put one finger down if you have ever been fearful when being followed by the police. Eight, Put one finger down if you have ever been given a pass on a traffic citation that you know you deserved. Nine, put one finger down if you've ever been followed, stopped, or detained by the police for no valid reason. Ten, put one finger down if you've ever been bullied in any way solely because of your race or the color of your skin. Eleven, Put one finger down if you have ever been denied service solely because of the color of your skin. And 12, put one finger down if you have ever had to talk to teach your children how not to be killed or harassed by the police. So if you have any fingers left, that's white privilege. And People have been asking me what you have the privilege 
not to have dark skin. Okay, so I believe, and many of you work in social services, obviously, but I believe that the problem, and here's the card, what I mentioned, the cards, the 10 aces, the problem with society is not just racist cops or the problem with community, and this is not just black or white or brown, this is anyone, and you all know what 10 aces are, adverse childhood experiences. And I'm just gonna go through them quickly, uh, not the percentages, I know most of you know them, your parents separated, divorce, physical abuse, physical neglect, emotional abuse and emotional neglect, sexual abuse, you witness domestic violence in your house or somewhere else, substance abuse in your household, mental illness in your household, or number 10, one of your family members are in prison. And you all know from working with youth and others, if you suffer from certainly more than four or five of these, chances of you having a happy childhood and chances of you um, having the same advantages as to others who don't is, is slim or not. It's very slim. So that's why I'm such an advocate of social justice, social services, um, for those who work with youth and who have worked with youth who experienced some or all of these things, certainly all of these things. And that's, that's someone that's lived a tough life thinking, thinking about it, particularly if they're children. So what come up with is about 45 years ago, going back to 1975, 1976, um, there was a community in Rosedale, New York. And Rosedale is a suburb of New York. It was it's a pretty nice suburb in New York. Today, oddly enough, Rosedale is all black, but at that time it was mostly white. And there was, uh, you're gonna see some adults now who were kids then uh, who were black, who experienced a scary form of racism at that time and bias. And basically they were in their neighborhood, riding their bikes, walking around. seven, eight of us. Our parents said, as long as you were home before the streetlights came on, you stayed as a group, you're fine. It was a beautiful day, sunshine. The children in the neighborhood planned to go on a trip to McDonald's, just have some fun, something different to do. Rosedale, we thought was a safe place. We all went down, we were riding our bikes. And then we saw down the block that there was this beautiful American flag blowing in the wind. We saw a group outside on the block. So we was like, oh, this is a block party. The last thing that I remember was someone saying, oh, a parade. 
And so we went down to go see the parade. And I laugh about it to this day because it was a parade to get the black people out of Rosedale. It's the summer of 1975. White residents in Rosedale, Queens are protesting black families moving into the neighborhood. These are scenes from a documentary produced by journalist Bill Moyers. Does he have a right to live here? No. Why not? Because he's black. This was not the South. This was not Greenville, Mississippi, or Spartanburg, South Carolina, or Atlanta, Georgia. This was right in the heart of the greatest metropolitan area in the country. The documentary was found nearly 45 years later by a graduate student who posted a short clip on the internet. It went viral on Twitter and Facebook. And a question people kept asking, where are the kids now? Hey Rob, this is Whitney Hurst calling from the New York Times. My name is Whitney Hurst, I'm a journalist. To answer that question, we called more than 90 people who had lived in Rosedale at that I was time. trying to find anyone that might have known someone. We couldn't find any white residents who said they'd been there. But we spoke with several of the black children. We wanted to hear what happened to them that day to understand why their experience is resonating decades later. We went down to see what was going on, probably in the middle of the blocks. That's when we figured out it was something else. And it was something that we definitely were not invited to. We noticed that they were running towards us. I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, like, why are they rushing towards us? Not thinking anything negative. And then we heard, nigga. They surrounded my best friend at the time, Marina. One of the young men hit her. They started calling us names. They started throwing rocks. Hearing the word, hearing it directed at me, why are you calling me that? That's not me. You know, I've always been told that's not me. I didn't understand. I was like, who do you think you are to say we can't come here? Like, how dare you? What happened to you? He threw the rock. He tried to hit my sister, but he almost hit me about that much away from me. And I was sure I wish he had hit me with that rock. I would pick up the rock right next to me and hit him right in his face. I was just kind of amazed to see that people could act like that, to tell you the truth. That was like really the first where I was like, wow, people do not like black people. They will always do that. They always spit on us like we some dogs. They always go back on them. Ain't nothing, ain't nothing gonna change. I immediately was reminded of those programs my parents would have me watch with the dogs and the, and the hoses and people trying to vote and being killed and lynch. It just, it went right back to my history in this country. It just linked me immediately with that whole experience because I felt it. Do you forgive her? No. No. Can't take back no hurt. I didn't know what to do with those feelings. I did not know what to do with those feelings. From Moyers, the video going viral shows how powerful images can be. He tried to hit me. 
I mean, I do believe that television has been a great teacher. This country didn't really respond to what was going on in the South, although it was well known, until the sheriff in Birmingham turned the water hoses and the dogs on those young people who were demonstrating there. We knew about it. We heard about it. We were aware of it, but we didn't see it. We couldn't escape it once we saw it. Every time a group of blacks get together and want to help Rosedale with their problems, we don't need any outsiders helping us with our problems. And we'll stay white, period. All right, so guys, this next scene is very disturbing. All right, it's the one I was telling you about yesterday. I started a sociology elective in 2004-2005 school year, and my supervisor at the time, he said, come up with something that's close to home that maybe you can relate to today. I grew up in Rosedale. And I said, I want to do a unit on race in America. And that Rosedale video, I've been showing it for 15 years now. You know, giving it to the kids and say, what do you think? I've never seen racism on camera. That was full on racism and just bullying. I'm glad that I saw it because it needs to be seen. I feel like everyone should see this. I think it's come back up because of the fact that we're going back, kind of. Racism is still alive. It's still poisoning other minds. This is how it was back then. Let's not repeat it again. Emotionally, I think it's connecting with kids more today. This generation is that I generation. They can see it in a 10-second span, make a connection to it. Can't take that, no the kids are never going to forget that. They can't unsee it, and it's going to be with them forever. Rose Dio, it's turned predominantly Black now, so we're welcomed there now. <laughs> that day, the American flag was the image, the symbol that pulled us into that situation. We live in America. The American flag means good things. It means that we can go where we want to go. We can ride our bike down any street in America. But it really represented a symbol of do not enter. So they took that beautiful image and turned it into something ugly for me. And I want the flag back. It's amazing how emotional that still is for those kids who are now adults, uh, recalling, um, you know, back in 1975, what they experienced and how they felt. As you can see, the effects on something like that aren't just at the time, that affects you, that can affect people for their entire, in, in entire life. I, um, growing up, um, lived in pretty much all white neighborhood, went to all white schools most of my life. And I remember being in preschool. I don't know if it was nursery school or kindergarten. It was one of those ones where you take a nap during the day. And, uh, you know, sometimes boys can be rambunctious, but uh, we were playing and, uh, you know, boys can be a little handsy, but we got into a bit of argument with one of my classmates. And I remember this vividly because uh, my mother had to come to school and pick me up and um, we got into an argument and then he 
told me I was black. And maybe I wasn't the sharpest kid in the school, but I didn't know. Parents had never told us, you know, that there was anything different. I, at that time, I didn't know. And I remember crying. Uh, mother came to get me and what's wrong? And told me, well, you are. And black is beautiful. And, you know, you're, you're as good as anybody and that type of thing. But, uh, and that's kind of some of what, what you know, pe people experience. I know I experienced it, that at a very young age. So there is a, a movement going on now, as you, and you all are familiar with this, called, you know, Say Their Names. And you see a bunch of names up here. And I'm not going through all of them. I'm certainly not going to talk about a lot of them. But there is one that really, besides George Floyd, one that really disturbed me. That's Breonna Taylor. And if you all don't know the story of what happened to her in her home, and they pretty much kicked down the doors and she got killed. And to this day, nothing's been done. That's just kind of the injustice. As a former police officer, I will tell you this. And are there criminals and are there justifiable shootings? Absolutely. No one deserves to be knelt on for any amount of time. That's no training in any police department anywhere or a police officer taught that. And there are rules on when you can and cannot shoot people or use deadly force, as it's called. And I guarantee you, you can't shoot people in the back. So with that being said, I would have thought that in, in the 90s when uh, Rodney King whole thing happened in Los Angeles, that that would be enough. But as you can see, this, this thing is full of names and I could have made it bigger. There are a lot more people who were just killed and, and most of them needlessly not justifiable. And in most cases, if not all, nothing happened. There was no justice. Right now, the WNBA has a thing called Say Her Name, and that is for Brianna Taylor and other women who were killed because, so the women aren't forgotten who were killed uh, needlessly in, in, with this type of uh, policing. Um, I am a science fiction buff. And in the 1960s, uh, there was, and I've been watching this all my life. You all might be familiar with Star Trek, you might not want to be. But this was a season three, episode 15 from the original series. And it's called Let That Be Your Battlefield. And you see, this was in the year, you know, whatever, 29 something where space travel was common. And this was a mutant race. And you see they're black on one side and white on the other side. If you look closely, the one, uh, one of them is black on the left side, white on the right side. And the other one is black on the right side and white on the left side. And the whole moral of this episode, which looks into the future, is that they viewed each other as different. Now, when you look at them, they're wearing the same clothes. They look the same. But the only difference is one is black on the right and the other one's black on the left. Other than that, they're the same. But they didn't see it that way. And even you know, 300 years into the future, people still can't figure out race or, or skin pigmentation. It was a, you know, as the arts so commonly do, it's, it stated something. And by the way, if either of them looked in the mirror, that's why I call this look in the mirror, they would have seen themselves because they would have gotten the reflection of the other. So, um, I'm not trying to get you all to be Star Trek buffs, but that was, I just found that to be interesting. And that was a show that I watched in the sixties. 
So I have a saying, um, and that's kind of why I'm here today. You can't fix a problem that you can't see. And I just try to make you all see a few things that I've seen. And I think black people have seen most of their lives. And it's not to make people uh, apologize for what they have and where they live and all of that. It's just kind of make you see, I didn't see some part of the world and how people suffered until I became a cop. And I saw it on a daily basis. I saw every, I've arrested people for every crime you could have named imaginable. I saw the, the devil in people, but I also saw people who lived aces as a daily part of their lives and were never gonna be able to get out of it, unfortunately. So I'm not an expert at this. I can't tell you what all black people want. This stands for what do black people want? You know, I have people tell me, yeah, black people seem like they're angry all the time. And well, well, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Some are, and you know, it's just, I would tell you this, how about fundamental fairness? The, the same fairness in life that anyone would, would, would get, given the benefit of the doubt, being able to trust and security in public services. That's whether you're the fireman, policeman, whatever the public service are. Because in most inner cities, it's hard for minorities, black people to trust. Uh, peace, justice, the American way. What, what, the, what, the, what were those kids looking for in Rosedale? They wanted to go to the parade, celebrate America, be part of the community, just be treated as the same. And lastly, I want equality. And better than I could state it, in the, the great Maya Angelou, the great poet, poet, a friend gave me this poem, and I want to share it with all of you. And if you can see it on the screen, I'll go through it. You declare you see me dimly through a glass which will not shine. Though I stand before you boldly, trimming rank and making time. You do not own to hear me faintly as a whisper out of range while my drums beat out the message and the rhythms never change. Equality and I will be free. Equality and I will be free. You announce my ways are wanton, that I fly from man to man. But if I'm just a shadow to you, could you ever understand? We've lived a painful history. We know a shameful past, but I keep on marching forward and you keep on coming last. Equality and I will be free. Equality and I will be free. Take the blinders from your vision. Take the padding from your ears and confess you've heard me crying and admit you've seen my tears. Hear the temple so compelling. Hear the blood throb in my veins. Yes, my drums are beating nightly and the rhythms never change. Equality and I will be free. Equality and I will be free. The great Maya Angelou, again said so creatively. So as a basketball coach, uh, we tell our players, I'd always tell our players, we gotta focus on wins, but more of the process. And what are wins? Wins are what is important now. And what is important now is that we kind of acknowledge as 
a community as, as, as brothers and sisters that, hey, there's a problem. Things aren't fair. This shouldn't be happening. You know, this isn't right. Uh, today, you know, Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. Hey, self-examination. Examine your thoughts, your beliefs, your implicit biases, some of the things that we've gone over today. And two is, the third thing is I say, get educated. Learn about how other, what other people are going through. Whether they're in your community or not, there are people that are going through these nightmares daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, lifetime. Empathize, not sympathy, empathy. Nobody wants reparations or I'm not, I'm not talking about 400 years ago. I'm talking about what's important now, empathy. And lastly, whether it's this, this uh, webinar today, you know, or you talk to some people or you read a book or you look at one of the films I just shared with you today, you know, take some action. It may be asking some people some questions. It may be uh, finding more out about this, but whatever action that may be, it doesn't have to be marching. It doesn't have to be taking down flags or statues and that type of thing, but you know, take some action. Education is about changing. Um, this is more about the, they're in life, they're the have and the have nots. And the have-nots want what the haves have, which is some of the things I mentioned previously, you know, justice, and obviously Maya Angelou says it best, equality, fundamental fairness. So some things, I think, resources for you all that I'm only going to list a few. I have hundreds of them, but I'm going to just list a few. There's a book by Ijima Oluo, 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 I'm sorry, I screw up her name all the time. And it's so you want to talk about race. If, for those of you who like to read, great book. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson has a book called, it's caste, it's about the caste system, the origins of our discontents. It's another good one I highly recommend. I just started reading that uh, recently. And then my daughter turned me on to white fragility about three years ago. And it's why is it so hard for white people to talk about racism? I think it's hard for black people to talk about racism too. It's hard for all of us too. It's not an easy topic by Robin DiAngelo. For those of you who aren't readers uh, on the more creative side, there is a Netflix, uh, you can find it on Netflix or YouTube, it's called The 13th, and it's about incarceration. It's, it's really mind boggling if you get a chance to look at that, that'll open your eyes to incarceration and what life's like and, and how um, certainly black people are incarcerated at, at an extremely high rate. And then one of my favorites uh, movies, if you get a chance, In the Heat of the Night, you can find it on Amazon Prime or iTube, Google Play, whatever, starring uh, Rod Steiger and the great Sidney Poitier, who I'm named after, uh, takes place in Spartanburg, Mississippi, uh, obviously the racist South, and it's a very, very creative way to see what implicit bias and racism was in terms of, and then after they met, uh, Sidney Poitier, who played Virgil Tibbs, they got to know him. They said, hey, he's just like us. And that's kind of the theme of the movie, but it goes through some, how it was in the South. Uh, they didn't ask a lot of questions uh, in those days. So um, I think that about does it for me. Um, 
if you all have any questions, I would be happy to answer them. And before I get into that, if any of you want to contact me, my email is up here or it's alredo.theradofoundation.org. Um, if any of you want to contact me and talk about anything or resources or anything like that, I'm available. And if you get a chance and you want to do our survey, you have a smartphone, you can open up the camera and zap, uh, zap this app. And there's four to six questions there for you. And you can let us know what you think about that. I want to thank um, Alice, Penny, and Jesus and the Western Slope Collaborative for having me. Um, I appreciate the chance to share my thoughts with you on implicit bias. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lou. It looks like we have one question um, from Kenya McQueen, and uh, she writes, why is black on black constantly brought when crime statistics are mentioned? It's a form of propaganda to justify the killing of black people. Crime is crime, and it's all wrong. And then she also wrote, I'm sorry, she also wrote that she ran out of fingers when you were doing the, uh, the fingers. Um, who is this from, Hey, This is from Kenya McQueen. Okay, Kenya, great question. Um, um, I've had several discussions on why that is. And um, one is it makes people feel like um, there's just black on black crime and it is a form of propaganda because if you were to put anyone, any race, and look, we all came over here when I say over here to America, whether you're black, Italian, Irish, Jewish, everybody other than the Americans, we all came here and had to go through some purgatory. And when you put people in living conditions and it's ACEs, then you're gonna have a lot, there are more white on white crime than black on black crime. And there are more white people who are poor than black people. It's just black people make up 12% of the population and we're incarcerated more and it gets more attention. Um, I think you know why that is, and uh, until you know black people are the dominant culture, that's not going to be the case. We're the minority, and that's 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 why it's not fair, and um, that is why. Thank you for your question. Um, let's see. So far, no other questions. So if anybody has any questions, please um, add them to the chat box or the Q&A. Give it a little bit of time. Got a lot of thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent dialogue, Lou. Okay. Yeah. Oh, um, they want to know what is the Reno um, uh, Foundation? If you can talk about your foundation, please. Uh, well, uh, the foundation which uh, was uh, started before the pandemic was simply, as Jesus read about uh, in the bio, uh, was to focus on, well, one was philanthropy, um, social justice, activism, education, youth, the things that I'm passionate about, theater was one thing that I'm really passionate about that wasn't mentioned because I'm a big, we're a big fan of the arts. So those things and um, 
just to give back to those organizations that represent that. And youth has been a lot of what I'm on a lot of boards, 501c3s that, that focus on those things. But this is the one that uh, we started. Thank you for asking. I have a good question here from Julene Aguilar. Um, she says that kids in El Dorado County are not exposed to a lot of diversity. What can we do as a community to promote empathy and awareness? Well, if I were teaching in El Dorado County or I was a counselor or coach or something there, I would have someone, people coming from outside of the community or who are in the community and speak on these things and, 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 expose them to people so that they're not just seeing the propaganda as the other question came. They're seeing people in a different light, like myself or other people like me. And I've done so many talks at schools and stuff and people were, even when I was a cop, I did them. But you need to have people, anybody, you know, with a briefcase from out of your community come in and see. They could do student exchange. There are a lot of things that you do. You could share the blue-eyed experiment. You can you do a lot of things like that. You can make them aware of books, you can share with them, but in a more personal experience, you know, like, you know, it's, it, it's worth a thousand, it's worth more than its weight in his gold. Like, like my friends who were able to see my dad and actually touch, that was their first experience ever touching a black man. I mean, it, you know, we were friends, but they really didn't see the color difference in a boy. They saw it in a man. And, um, that was a life-changing experience for my friends, a good one. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> um, Can I add on to that? Um, yes. Yeah, I think um, just the conversation that we're having today is the beginning of a discussion that we need to have in this county. And, and I agree with Lou. I think that we need to have more presenters to come and talk about um, race and and um, I love the suggestion of having more people from um, out of town come in and have that discussion because um, as service providers, we have to look at um, the families that we serve through their lens and be able to communicate and have that tolerance level. So um, yeah, I strongly agree. Thank you, Lou. Oh, thanks. thanks, Jesus, appreciate it. Um, one other question from Julene. Uh, do you experience daily implicit bias yourself? Uh, I don't know about every day, but I, I, weekly. I mean, I live in Santa Barbara. Um, I've only, I came from Houston, Texas before that. Before that, I lived in San Francisco Bay Area most of my life. But so, you know, yes, uh, the most recent time I experienced it and um, was, um, what's today, Tuesday? Was last Friday, I was waiting somewhere and walked in and and I was, I guess I'd been uh, working out and I had a hood on. I guess I didn't look right. And somebody walked in there and saw me and, and looked at me and then walked right out. And I just, you know, they, I guess I scared them. And uh, yeah, I've been stopped by the police since I've been here a handful of times for nothing. And, you know, I, it's easy to identify someone when they don't look like you, just like it was when I was in second grade and I was walking home and the police officer didn't leave, you know, didn't. He, he never saw me, I guess, and figured I was not somewhere I belong. So yes, it happens all the time. Um, you learn to live with it. I learned to smile and, and, and you wear a mask. I wear a mask and pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, 
My, my father and taught me at a young age, do not be a victim. Do not let that stop you, you from going to school, achieving and being the man that you need to be. So that's been my take on it. But some days have been harder than others. Um, the Olympic club was an interesting thing because I, you know, for once thought I was there just as everybody else. But again, again, I looked out of place. Like it's easy to find someone that looks out of place. There are many times today, every day where I show up and I'm, I'm the only person that looks like me there. I'm the only black person there, whether it could be church, it could be, it could be at the University of Santa Barbara. I'm the only person. And so, yes, I do. Um, we also have a question about how or can people donate to the foundation, to your foundation? Well, we really don't take donations as it is that we raise money, but that's something they can write about. But we're not, it's, uh, we're kind of privately funded. And so it's, it's not something has to do. But um, I think if people, you know, want to talk about causes to support, there are some that we have listed. The website is down now just because of the pandemic and we we're redoing some stuff, but um, thank them. That's very generous of them. But there are many causes that are worthy. And if they want to get a hold of me, I can share some with that we're working with as we speak. Thank you. I don't see any other questions, Jesus. Yeah, I just noticed, uh, I'm oh. in the chat, and I just noticed okay. something from Ann Tronosky, who was my classmate in the Blue-Eyed Experiment. Oh. And she says she remembers that. And the uh, teacher took a lot of heat. It was a big deal. It was very emotional. Yeah, Ann, you're right. And uh, I didn't know you were going to be here today, Ann, but uh, yeah. I remember Ann and I went to school. She was in the class. I, now, Ann is Caucasian. Ann, I don't remember if you, what color your eyes are. I apologize for that, but I know you're, I know you're white, but I don't know if you were- Brown. She okay. said brown. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were brown. Um, but there weren't, weren't many of us, there were more, I want to say there were more blue eyes in the class, but very emotional experience. And yeah, the teacher took a lot of heat at that time, I remember. Lots of crying, yes, Anne, for sure. Wow, very impactful. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Any more questions before we conclude our presentation? Well, Lou, I wanna say just on behalf of the collaborative, thank you so much for doing this. Um, wonderful, wonderful presentation. Thank you all for having me. Uh, next time I'm on my way to Sugar Bowl to ski or something, I'll stop in to Hangtown and visit you guys. Thank you all for attending and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. You too.